The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Elizabeth Crook. Elizabeth is the author of Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next. She's a corporate strategist and advisor. She says, although many people may be unhappy with key aspects of their lives, careers, relationships, financial circumstances, health, etc., they are often unclear over what changes they need to or want to make. Elizabeth provides a process for not only identifying limiting beliefs, but discovering unique talents and developing a concrete plan for reaching life aspirations. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Elizabeth. Thanks, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. Well, you know, most of us, or should we say most of us or many of us, I would say at least in certain areas of our lives, perhaps are not so happy and we want to do better and be more successful and achieve more. But as you say in your book, there's so many things, unfortunately, that stand in the way. We sort of sabotage our own ability to do that. Exactly. Well, what would you say? I mean, you've been doing this for, what, over 20 years? Right. Um, Yeah. And I guess the first thing is, um, we're talking about different areas of our lives, whether it's health or relationships or uh, friends or, or business, whatever it is, um, that obviously your book helps us to maybe be able to begin to achieve some of these goals. But who is it for? Is it for all of us or women, men, people, you know, in different, you know, cycles of their lives or um, who will benefit, I guess, from from reading your book. Thank you for asking. I, as you mentioned, I've been a strategist for the past uh, 20 plus years with businesses, but what I found were people knocking on my door and saying, can you help me figure this out? I'm, I'm not sure I'm happy where I am, but I don't really know what else I know how to do. I don't know where I want to go next, but, you know, I've been successful, but I'm not getting the buzz. I'm not getting juiced by this. I'm working so hard, but... It's almost like I don't care anymore. And so I began to work with these people. And over the 20 years' time, I developed a process that I could see was so powerful that some years ago, probably 10 years ago, I started using that same, sometimes I call it personal strategic planning, with uh, all of my CEOs before we move into planning for their company because it helped us both get clear about what role their business had and how all of the pieces of their lives came together. I have met so many people who have been successful but who want to be intentional about how they use their skills, their experience, their talents, and indeed their energy and passion, but they don't know how to even approach such a big question. And some some of us even feel guilty when they say, gosh, I, I'm doing well, but uh, I'm not happy. What's the matter? And how can I move into something that feels more fulfilling? 
So Elizabeth, Elizabeth, take us through an, an example, you know, specifically when some, well, you gave us actually two different situations where some people are just saying they're unhappy, miserable, and other people say, I'm happy, but I'm not happy. Or you call it the yippee index. You want to be yippee. I feel really great about what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> exactly. so what, <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to have the yippee, yippee index? But um, take us through well, one of your CEOs, for example, Okay, who's uh, you're going to work with them individually before you actually help them um, improve in terms of what's being done at their company. Right. So I'll give you an example. I was actually called by an investment banker who said, I have a client. It's a husband-wife company. They've been successful. Uh, they're at about $16 million in revenue, but they're exhausted. They're tired of working in the business. They want to sell it, but their profitability is not high enough. Can you help them increase their profitability? Well, before beginning on that, I said, why don't we sit down and really look at what it is you want in your life and we began with I interviewed them both we did a lifeline we did many of the things that have now become part of the live large process but when we looked at the different roles that they each wanted to play in their lives the wife said I'm done I want to paint paintings I want to teach uh, Sunday school and I want to take trips with my with my family the husband said I want to be a, uh, a leader in my community, and there's some issues in my industry that I want to address. So I want to be an industry leader. Once, once he articulated that, it was pretty clear that if he sold the company, he would no longer have the platform and the access to be that leader in his industry because he was still a relatively young man. And so what we came to, then we looked at the company, and the company was bottlenecked around him. He didn't have a management team. So when we, when we were clear, when he was clear about what he wanted in his life and the sort of impacts he wanted to make, the solution was not selling the company in his case. In her case, it was getting out of the business and doing something else. So that's how that clarity will drive other decisions. Uh, it's a way of well, that's saying, a good example. So she- Pardon? I was going to say, so she got out of the business, and I assume that he found and he needed that platform in order to do the other things he wanted to do in the community. So did he find somebody else to replace her or to take on her role in the business? Well, he built out a management team, which he didn't have. He still had the guy he had hired who was a buddy of his in high school who really wasn't doing a good job. He had all, he didn't have, he was the only one who was at the center of the hub instead of having a team. And when a company gets to be that size, you really need to have a team. So we were able to help him restructure the company so it wasn't about replacing her. It was about building something that had never been there before. Is that common? I mean, do you find that in, in companies? Well, I don't want to say it's a mom and pop, but here you have two people running a, what did you say, $16 million uh, a year business. Um you know, both of them entrepreneurs, obviously, but wanting to go in a different direction. Um, is, is is that typical um, of of the kinds of, of um, companies that you work with? Well, I've seen it even in much larger companies, companies where several things I'll see. Number one is I'll see a CEO who has, and this is where the limiting beliefs come in, who's had a particular style I know that you know, as a, as a social worker, that people continue to do what's worked for them in the past. And if you've always been the independent one or the driving one or the organized one, that we tend to do that 
over and over and over again because it's what's worked. Uh, but at a certain point, it's important to have a style flexibility. I call it expanding your repertoire of responses. I'll tell you a story. I worked with a man, and he had been promoted to plant engineer, very bright guy, and yet when he was promoted to man- the management team, he made everybody angry, and he couldn't get along, and his the plant manager called and said, you know, I've got this high-potential guy. He is so smart, but he makes everybody crazy. So as we talked, he told me, I asked him about his, to tell me his story, and part of his story was that he was one of six children. His father had left his mother when he was in grade school, and he said, you know, the reason that I am as successful as I am is because I've never relied on anyone else. And he said, I frankly think that to ask for help is, it shows weakness. Well, now, that independence, which helped him survive, helped him get an education. He was the first in his family to go to college. Served him very well. But when he found himself on a management team, he didn't have any other way to act. His only way to be successful in his mind was to continue to be independent and not ask for help. So what we worked on was helping him expand his responses so he could still be independent, but he didn't have to always be independent. So we play with the notion in the book of always and never. Or there's, When we find ourselves stuck in always and never, then we limit our, we limit our, our, our options and we're you know, like a watch that stopped. It's absolutely right twice a day and it's wrong the rest of the time. And, uh, well, then that's key. You, I mean, and I think that's probably common with most of us, limiting our options, you call it, limiting our, well, but we have to identify is what you're saying. We have to identify those limiting beliefs. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. whatever context they're in. Okay, so you've given us like some examples in, in the in the corporate world. Are there other examples? I mean, as a social worker, I deal with people, individuals, families, couples, et cetera, that this also applies to because I think it's the same way. We do that in our just in our everyday relationships. We limit our um we limit our beliefs, but we have to identify them. So how's how do we do that? Well, I I have several explorations in the book. And the first starts with what I call the retrospective, and it invites people to think back. I have them create a timeline of their life from, you know, say, junior high or high school up until their present day, and to just write down what were the things that were fun and easy or that you enjoyed doing that you were good at, and then to also say what were the things that were hard or challenging. And when you do that over those decades, you, and then I say, so what are some themes that appear? Because we, most of us are pretty much who we are. And out of that, it's easy to develop a list of characteristics. You know, we may be creative or organized or, or driving or shy or optimistic, whatever those are. We've been that way for a long time. And the way people get stuck in always and never is to, is to overuse what they view as their greatest strengths. So starting with the characteristics uh, is a very powerful way to say, to be curious and say, are there any of these things that I think of as my strengths that I'm overusing? 
And then what are the negative consequences when I overuse them? So I worked uh, with a woman who was, her, her complaint was, she said, you know, I feel like that I'm having to take on all the heavy work in my company. She said, it seems like that my business partner and even my employees, they're good, but I always have to come in and finish it up. I have to check on them all the time. Well, in her, in her patterns, in her characteristics, she was responsible. It was a, a trait that she was very proud of. So this being overly responsible for everything, she created unconsciously a vicious cycle. The more she did, the less everybody else did. And the less everybody else did, the more she did. So a vicious cycle is something that gets perpetuated. Our actions bring on and affect the very result that we are most fearful of. But we get to be right about ourselves. We get to say, yes, I really am the only responsible person. And then we set about to unconsciously prove that we are right by disincentivizing everybody else who would help us. That it is so difficult when you're describing. You ask people to talk, you know, to write down what their strengths and or perceived strength and weaknesses are, like in middle school or in high school. When you carry those 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 perceptions with you for so long, and I imagine what most of your clients would be, what thirties, forties, fifties, when they reach the point of, hey, this stuff isn't working for me anymore. Really well, hard you know, to get rid of that. It really goes on up. I, I think my oldest client is seventy someone who's been hugely successful, hundreds of millions of dollars, and yet it's finding, it, it's, it's not only a limiting belief, or a set of limiting beliefs, but it's reinterpreting or re-understanding or discerning what is truly their purpose, what are the things that are energizing and that they are passionate about, as opposed to the things that I've just got to do this stuff. So it's, it's not just about limiting beliefs. It's also about what you're moving toward and getting clearer about that. Uh, we tend to think in terms of, uh, especially when people are changing or think they want to change careers, they'll say, well, I've always been in financial services or retail or technology. That's the only thing I know. So they limit their options. And in the process, we help people look at what are the processes that they know about, not just the contents they know about, the know-hows as opposed to just the know-whats. And it opens up a whole box of, uh, of opportunities that they would never have considered. Well, in, in light of that, you also, in the book, you introduced the concept of the triple J. What is the triple J? How does that work? <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure in, in your work you've run across it. It's that voice in our head that says, how dare you think you could do that? Or are you getting too big for your britches? Or are you just being selfish, wanting it to all be fun in your way? It's the voice that may have been initially a parent's or a teacher's or a coach's. It's the voice that doubts everything you do. And I call it the triple J, which stands for the jury, which says whether you're guilty or innocent, the judge who passes sentence, and the jailer who locks you up. So it's that voice that says, no, you can't, no, you shouldn't. Uh, that holds you back. That sabotages everything, as you say, sabotages our dreams and whatever our aspirations are. So one of the things, and I hear this a lot, if you really want to understand what those are, you have to write them down. You have to acknowledge them. Because I think the tendency is to, like, 
you know, you, you don't want to acknowledge it. So, you, you, you sort of want to put it on the back burner, but you have to really, I guess, make it real. Talk to somebody about it and also write it down. It's really important to do that. I agree with you, Catherine. I think you've, you've nailed it because the Triple J at its most destructive is when it operates out of our awareness. It's there. It will probably always be there. What we want to do is shine a spotlight on it so we can say, you remember when you were little and you would wake up in the night and you would see something sitting in the chair that you were sure was a monster? And then you turn Mine on the bedside under the bed. light and it's just your coat that you left on the chair. <laughs> well, in some ways it's the same way with the Triple J. We have to shine the light on the Triple J so we can say, oh yeah, that's that voice. That's that voice that makes me doubt my own abilities. That's that voice that sabotages me. And then I agree with you that writing it down can be a very powerful way because sometimes when we write it down, it's like shining the light on it and we can say, well, that's silly. Or sometimes I advise people to talk back to it and say, well, you may think that, but here's all the evidence that would suggest otherwise. I have a client who I've worked with uh, who is uh, who's brilliant. He has a very powerful network of influencers, and sometimes he seems impatient. And there are days when my own Triple J will say, oh, my goodness, I'm not sure that, that he really thinks you're that smart or that good or that whatever. And so when I can hear the Triple J saying that, then I can say, well, what evidence is there to refute that? Well, how about that he sent you three referrals last year? How about that he's been working with you now for, for you know, 15 years at the time? Those would suggest that he has a high level of confidence in your ability, wouldn't it? And then, of course, I laugh and giggle and say, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. And <laughs> so I think it can be helpful to be playful with yourself and to be, uh, you know, Show a little compassion and say, oh, "This Triple J, gosh, what a what a what a burden it can be." But I'm not going to let it slow me down. I mean, that's a great example. And, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking out because I was going to ask you, like Elizabeth, what that's your Triple J in general? Like, you know, this guy you know, makes a hundred million dollars a year or whatever, and how why is he listening to me? But then you you get go through that evidence in your mind. You got referrals from him or. Um, but so where did yours come from? I mean, I, I think I have a sense, you know, after, uh, you know, I've been in therapy myself. I read your book. I mean, you, you do get a sense of where all this stuff comes from and it's always going to be there. I think that's an important point you make. It's like, don't dismiss it because you're always going to be dealing with it, right? On one level yes, or another. Yes. Yeah. But and we have where did yours, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, well, where, I mean, if you could share with us, like, where did yours come from? I mean, who's, who, where's that little voice that's telling you, uh-uh, you're not smart enough, Elizabeth, you shouldn't be working with these big companies, whatever the scenario is? Well, I think that, that in my case, it probably comes from a couple of different places. I think one is that when we're little or, or smaller, you know, our parents want us to be prepared, and so they may say things like, you haven't studied hard enough. Well, maybe I didn't study hard enough for that spelling test in third grade, but that doesn't mean I've never studied hard enough. <laughs> so we overgeneralize from some situation. The first time, gosh, I was in my 30s. Uh, I had just been hired for a, a big job. I was living overseas, and 
was hired uh, this big job uh, to put together a program to involve multinational companies in a national literacy program and to involve them financially as well as programmatically. So it was a big development job, and I had done development jobs, but I've had a lot of other jobs in business development. And uh, I was telling my mother about it. I can, I, I can see it right now. We were driving to the airport, and she, I said, you know, I've just gotten this job and blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know, there are people who are professional fundraisers. And it, it was like almost a slap across my face. It was like, you couldn't possibly be doing that when I was, when I had some very unique skills and experiences that let me be highly successful at that. But it was just, uh, don't, don't think that you're so big and so important. But yet I can tell you that with her mouth, my mother was always very encouraging and always very complimentary, but there were always those little small things, those little, don't, don't get too big for your britches kind of comments that can come back for all of us and haunt us when we, without our being aware, and that's what makes it so destructive. Yeah, that's a great example because I think one of the things parents in particular don't realize how powerful their words are. Like you said, your mother could be encouraging and, you know, you went to a great college and you did all kinds of, you accomplished so many things, which she was aware of, obviously, but they can say those little things and it's... and all of a sudden, you know, you've accomplished all this stuff and you become that little girl again. And the power of those words, I mean, I haven't heard, I've heard those words before too, both from my mother and my father, and I'm sure most people do. I mean, but because I think the parents don't realize how powerful those words are. So, And they're frequently, I think, based on, I believe that, most parents want what's good for their children. I worked with a woman, very bright, but who always underestimated her own ability. And in hearing her story, her mother, uh, they, had, they were Puerto Rican, and her mother had really experienced uh, you know, discrimination because she was a person of color. And I think in order to protect her daughter from striving too high that she would be hurt by either discrimination or being knocked down, she inadvertently put the message in her daughter's head, you shouldn't expect so much. You should be happy with modest rewards and with modest positions. Her mother didn't mean to hold her down, but she had. I think also in that kind of a scenario, you have to look at your, it's it's her own fears also in this example you gave the mother, it's her own fears, her own fears about she doesn't want to feel that way, you yeah. know, somehow, some, yeah, and wanting to protect her daughter from feeling that way when, in fact, her daughter is a very different person. And, uh, you know, so it, it's sort of said in um, good faith, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, yeah, that's not mm-hmm. what happens. Uh, yeah. Well, I love the example. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I, I just agree with you. And, of course, Again, given your background, I'm sure you have seen and noticed all of these things. And the point is we all have them. And yet so many of us walk around most of our lives thinking that we have this horrible secret or that we are in some ways so flawed and if everybody knew about it, they wouldn't hire us or love us anymore, to to put it at its most extreme. And uh, I think one of my main purposes in writing the book is to help people develop, first of all, self-compassion, 
we are so hard on ourselves. And second, a sense of humor and to be playful and experimental. And so the, the explorations help people harvest what is there to be harvested, to hold on to what is valuable about everything that they bring forward, and also to decide what beliefs no longer serve them, frankly. Have you ever had any, let's say, people that you've worked with, any clients that you actually have felt like maybe they're right? You know, these the, the person, I mean, is, is sort of maybe won't be able to accomplish or, you know, get rid of some of these uh, limiting beliefs um, that they have held on to them for too long, or has every case been a success? Well, when I work one-on-one with a person, it gives a lot of, I guess, safety and a lot of power because I will ask them, I am not prescriptive with the people I work with. My role is to ask them questions in such a way that gives them a way to say, it's kind of the old Dr. Phil question, so how's that working for you? Or to, uh, to pose it in a, in a way that they can begin to get a better insight. And also to let them know that it will come back. And it's, I talk about, you're never gonna conquer this, but there are many things that we do on automatic pilot. But if you know that you are, in whatever area where your triple J is acting up, you may have to just come in, go off autopilot and come into manual control and say, I will always or I will frequently feel uncomfortable when I'm making a decision in this area. But what I know is that's part of just the way I was programmed, but I don't have to act out of that old programming. And then I also, there are cases when I feel like people are stuck, and I refer clients to therapy when I think that that's what's required. And I'm not bashful about that because (laughs) I've benefited from therapy and uh, a lot of therapy. And so, uh, again, I don't think our goal is perfection. I think our goal is to be able to say, oh, yes, uh, there you are, that attitude, so does that serve me today or does it not serve me? Yeah, and it's all about, as you say, it's all about awareness. And I keep going yeah. back to that. I, I love it. Those limiting, I don't love them, the beliefs, but limiting beliefs, know what they are. And then just maybe, we only have three minutes left, but I think one really important thing is that you mentioned is I mean, you have to have an action plan based on this assessment uh, that you've made. So you have to right. have a goal, at, you know, in terms of what you're going to achieve. Right. And I think one of the things that distinguishes uh, the book that I wanted to do is there are many wonderful books and teachers out there. And I think all of us have been to a conference or heard a speech and left inspired and said, oh, wow, that's so exciting, but we don't do anything different the next day. And I wanted to make it easy, easy, easy for people to take these insights and then turn them into actions that will actually well, you've done change that. their lives well, because until we change something, nothing changes. Yeah. Well, your book is very specific, and like you said, that's very necessary. You can't have all these lofty ideas and feel-good stuff, but then you really don't specifically know what to do or how to go about and make the change, which you do in your book, Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next. Elizabeth Crook. Elizabeth, give us a website that we can 
go to um, for more information about your book? I assume you can buy the book on Amazon, bookstores everywhere, but, you know, maybe other information about what you do or what you're doing um, as well as as about the book. It's ElizabethBCrook.com, and there people can download the the uh, explorations that are in the book so they're easier to work with. They can also sign up. I write a sometimes funny, sometimes profound piece, short, every Tuesday. They can sign up for that. And we're always coming up with new plans and uh, videos and that sort of thing to help everybody live large. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Really enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed it too, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Tonya DiCosimo, dating columnist and entrepreneur and author of Single and Not Settling, A Journey of Surviving the Dating World. Well, in 1960, 60% of all Americans were married by the age of 29. That number is now down to 20%. Uh, when Tonya turned 29, she was officially a statistic, one of the millions of single women experiencing the tribulations as well as the joys of trying to find a romantic life partner. Single and Not Settling is her memoir of her journey through the dating world. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me on. I mean, a very. I I did. I read your book. Um, very interesting because you didn't actually. Maybe I shouldn't even say this, but you didn't get married till you were what? Five, well, you had. I'm. I'm not going to tell your story, but this is a memoir. 
So obviously it's your experience with dating and advice yeah. for everyone else who's going through the same process. Um, you, I guess it, you were surprised, it seems to me, to be in the position of not being married at 29 years old. You always thought you would be. Yes, that is correct. I thought I was going to uh, marry my first love, my high school sweetheart, as they say, and uh, I had my life planned out. I mean, I dated someone from the age of 14 to 23, and he did propose, and uh, the day we were going to look for an engagement ring, he wanted me to pick it out, which was great, and uh, the day we were going to look for the engagement ring... I overheard him on the phone making plans with uh, another woman to have dinner with her that evening. So my whole life changed in an instant. And thus began my dating journey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a lot of women, I think, you know, obviously why you wrote the book, find themselves in similar situations. They think they have it all planned out. It may not be your plan, like you had known him since you were 14, but it may be another plan, but it doesn't work out the way they thought. So they find themselves like you said, single at, at 29 or single at 30 years old, and they really don't know what to do, or are they, you know, they, they're they sort of left in this kind of, uh, wow, how did I get here, and then where do I go from here, which is what obviously you share with us in the book. So, okay, yes. so you found, you know, here your fiancé is making dates with other people. That's not a good mm-hmm. situation, but at least <laughs> you got out. Yeah. Uh, then what happened? Yeah. You know, then I, it actually, it took me two years to uh, get out there again, just, just about two years to get out there again, because, you know, the whole trust issue, oh my God, is this going to happen again? How do I trust someone? And uh, finally, I met someone uh, just about, you know, two years later, and uh, great relationship, but unfortunately, he left me for another country. <laughs> <laughs> and he asked me to go with him uh, to London, and I decided I, I just couldn't leave uh, at that point in my life. We did have a great relationship, but again, he got a job offer in London, and he decided to take it. So You know, you as know, a social was- worker, because I, re- I just want to interrupt you, because I found that interesting, and you know, I'm a social worker, I'm a therapist, and I was thinking, well, did Tonya... I mean, you were very close to your family, close knit Italian family, and you said he left you for another country. And I thought, do you think if you maybe had a different perspective, you may have gone with him, but you were perhaps afraid to leave your family, and so you didn't go? Because he sounded like really, you know, a good guy. He's a great guy, and uh, you're absolutely correct. I think, you know, some people would have taken that that leap, that chance, moved to another country. Uh, You know, he does travel all over the world. Hey, who who doesn't want to travel all over the world? But, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, I look back, I don't know if that would have been the life for me because I think, you know, having kids and and traveling all over, that can create some other issues. But, uh, you know, I think everything happens in life for a reason, and... And everything is a learning experience, and it, it's really what you do with that. Um, and just you meet so many wonderful people, and a lot of, I'm going to say it, a lot of psychos out there as well, and I, I've met them all. But each experience, um, you know, gets you to the next level, and you realize what you've done right in your life, what you've done wrong, and uh, I'm in a good place today. All right, let's talk about what would you say are some of the things that you've done right or that you felt like you did right over the years uh, and the ones that, hey, don't do this. 
uh, you know, I'm going to share this with you. <laughs> well, there are a lot of do's and don'ts when it comes to, uh, you know, dating and first dates. And, and, and I think one of the major issues is we, we judge people too quick. Uh, we're too judgmental. Um, you know, I, I, I think we need to give people a second chance. And a lot of us are, are very picky. You know, uh, I'm not going to date someone because he's too tall or he's too short or, you know, he's bald or he's this, he's that. You know, we really have to look at the inner person, the inner qualities, and not be so quick to judge. In my case, though, on the flip side, I think I gave people... Uh, too many chances, and I went back for a second round with a, in a lot of my relationships, and I, I should have ended them a lot sooner. So uh, that was one of my issues. But, well, I see um, a lot of women in that. You know, I think I think um, you're, uh, there are quite a few women, at least that I know, who find that they stay they stay too long, even when they know that it's not working out or it doesn't work well. There's some. I don't know what it is, some imp- impetus or motivation to, to stay in a relationship that, that's just really not doing it for them. Yeah, so, well, let's face and, it, you know, it's, it's fear of being alone. It's fear of starting all over again. It's fear of, oh, my God, maybe I'll find somebody worse, you know, but maybe you'll find somebody better. So you have to look at the positive. And it, it's also called, you know, magical thinking, which is wishful thinking that, you, you know, you hope and you wish that somebody's going to just miraculously change, you know, because they say, oh, I'm going to change or, you know, I'm sorry, I'm never going to do this again. And we just stay in it because we have that, that magical and wishful thinking that people do change and and they really don't no they really don't they they i mean you can modify some things i think or work things out as a, as a couple but uh you know the person you see is the person you get yeah. um and like you say it is magical thinking but you did a lot of interesting things along the way okay you found yourself single at 29 for a lot of different reasons so you know take us through that because you you accomplished a lot during that period of time before you actually did connect with somebody? I did. I, you know, built a lot of businesses for for other people. I uh, built my own business. Um, You know, I obviously I wrote the book, which was uh, a a big challenge, I'm going to say, you know, writing a book is not easy. Um, And I, you know, the thing is, I love helping people. And if I can inspire or help one person through this book, it's worth it in the end. Um, People think, oh, you write a book, you're going to be a millionaire. That's not always the case. You have to write a book because you're passionate about the the topic, the subject that you're going to write about, uh, and you want to help people. And that's really why I did it. Um, And along the way, through the dating process, I mean, I met so many different types of people, uh, both both crazy and, and wonderful. Uh, you know, I've met trollers and, and, and catfishers and stalkers and false advertisers. I mean, you name it. That's all in the book. And uh, I know there's a lot of other people out there that have met the same types of people. And it's, it's a crazy world. It really is. You have to be careful. Yeah, you do have to be careful. And that, you know, I was going to ask you about online dating and those kinds of things because you've done all different kinds of dating. What do you think is the, or is there any one way that one should, let's say, date or, you know, find dates or go out on dates. And then, of course, you've got a lot of the specific do's and don'ts of dating. But for you, for instance, like, what did you, um, what what ended up being most comfortable for you if you were looking, if you were looking to, I don't want to say find someone, but uh, to connect with someone in a positive way? 
You know, introduction is still the number one way that people meet through, you know, through friends. Um, and that's how I met my husband through a mutual friend. And I'm glad that's how we met. But people are meeting today all different ways. I mean, obviously, online dating. I have several friends who met their, you know, uh, spouses through through online dating. Uh, Match.com, eHarmony, Zeus, I mean, plenty of fish, you name it. Uh, I mean, even people still meeting in bars today, sporting events, trips. There's single trips out there, uh, summer shares, winter shares. People even meet when, when walking their dog in the park. I mean, the thing is this, you have to keep an open mind because you just don't know when or where you're going to meet that person. But you do have to get out there. I mean, I have friends that are, you know, at this point, 48 and still single. And, you know, I say to them, what are you doing about it? You're not out there. I mean, nobody's going to knock on your door. You know, you really have to become proactive and try everything. And I know when you get to a certain point, a certain age, you're like, oh, I'm just not going to meet anyone, and you give up. And you can't give up. You have to keep going. You know, I have friends and who are, let's say, 50-plus, and at a certain point at 50-plus, that chemistry stuff doesn't happen in the same way it does in your 20s and in your 30s. And but you know they sort of have this I, I I would call it magical thinking they have this way of looking at you know men and thinking that they're or thinking that they're so attractive that somebody's going to be you know just wild and crazy you know there's going to be all this chemistry and maybe there just isn't you have to look for other things and that comes later but that's a difficult thing at least I find with some of my friends or colleagues they're always looking for that rush that you get when you're in your twenties and thirties and I I don't think that's realistic do you? No, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, you know, I, this is what I say to my friends. Are you looking for the impossible? And I get the whole attraction, the chemistry, but, uh, you know, and I'm going to say this, but when I first my, met my husband, yes, I was attracted to him. I thought he was good looking, but I just wasn't sure if he was for me. Um, he did text me the first time to go out on a date, and I said I would never date a texter. <laughs> <laughs> and we went out on a and date, you dated and we one. had the best time ever. So sometimes you say, uh, you know, I don't want this type, or I'm never going to date this type of person, and that's the person you wind up with. So that's why you have to give people a chance. Yeah, I would agree. And then what you say is, well, in the book now, you can we can get kind of spe- specific about uh, when you actually get out on that date, whether it's the texting date or however you meet the person, whether they, you get introduced. Um, what, um, one of the things you say, you don't make it all about you. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. Well, what happens is, uh, especially on the first date, I think, uh, we're very nervous and things just come out sometimes that shouldn't come out and you continuously talk about yourself, your past failed relationships. And I wouldn't go into that on the first date. I wouldn't go into that on the second date. Nobody wants to hear about all your failed relationships. Um, you know, save it maybe for the third date. <laughs> but uh, sometimes we just talk too much about ourselves, and we're not listening to the other person. And uh, I think being a good listener is extremely important. I think another thing, at least uh, I've noticed with some of my friends who may be divorced and they have kids and they talk too much about their children, maybe they're even grown children, because I don't, sort of going along with what you said, 
it doesn't really work. Nobody's really interested. It may be interested that you have them, but they're interested in you, not necessarily your, your children. I think that's a no-no, or talking about your divorce. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And also, I, finances. You know, uh, your finances on, on your first date. How many? Uh, I mean, I dated a guy who's telling me I have three cars, three homes, this, that, the other thing. You know, I, I really don't care on the first date. It's nice that you're successful, but let me get to know you. And uh, I don't care how many homes you have right now. And maybe some people do. You know, maybe that's, oh, this guy has, uh, you know, three cars, three homes. I want to date him. But I wasn't, that wasn't for me. You know, I, I, I want to hear who you are. So how, maybe what, in a way, he, he's telling me who he is. I was going <laughs> like, to say, that is who he is. Yeah, talking <laughs> yes. about the, all the money he has, you know. Obviously, people that do that, uh, well, I feel, are insecure. Um, and, and, Would you and say something? Would you say I, something I to him? I absolutely did. I, I, yeah. I did say something. I said that, you know, that's wonderful that you're very successful, but, you know, at this point, I don't, I don't care about how many homes you have. I did. You know, I'm a pretty blunt person. <laughs> and, you know, it's, everything's how you say it, not what you say. It's how you say it to someone. I actually think he respected me for not uh, being so concerned about his money. So, yeah. Well, you're a very outgoing person. And, and, and as you sound to me, I mean, obviously somebody who doesn't have difficulty connecting with people, men or women. Um, well, we all kind of covered this. I and mean, we're talking about you have to look past the physical. I mean, you can't totally look past the physical. You, there has to be some kind of an attraction, but sure. it doesn't, yeah. Some. You know, uh, uh, again, chemistry is important, but there's a difference between, you know, attraction and chemistry. Uh, attraction to me is more physical, and chemistry is more of like a deep feeling, an emotion, a bond. Um, so... You know, the initial attraction, you look at someone, you're, you're, you're attracted to them. Wow, this guy is a good-looking guy. But, you know, is there chemistry? Is there the emotional bond? And I think that's what gets you through, you know, uh, uh, or keeps you, I should say, in that relationship and the marriage. I mean, a a as we get older, we all change physically, and uh, there has to be that chemistry, that bond. Yeah, and it doesn't get better. <laughs> Let's be realistic. No. <laughs> <laughs> it gets worse. You have to work harder. Uh, you have to work harder on the other stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, here's one that you say, and I never really thought about this one, but, you know, proper table etiquette. Now, does this apply to everybody? Like, you have to have good manners or otherwise forget it? I mean, or be conscious of your manners because that may impact, like, whether or not this... Well, in this case, whether the guy is going to ask you out again. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's a biggie. I, I, you know, when you go out on a date with someone and, and you, you walk in the restaurant and somebody's blowing bubbles and, and chewing <laughs> gum, I mean, right there, that's a turn off. Uh, you know, also, if somebody orders a drink for themselves and doesn't order one for you, uh you, you're eating at the table and, and there's food falling out of their mouth. I mean, all this stuff does happen. I mean, it's crazy. I, it's, I could write another book just on, you know, etiquette. Uh, I, I don't... 
I don't understand it. I really don't. I don't understand what people are thinking. And again, is it nerves? You know, I try to look at, oh, the good in people. You know, maybe this person's just nervous and they don't know how to eat and they don't know how to act and, and they want to chew gum. I, you know, like, I can't figure it out myself. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know the response you're supposed to have. I mean, you're talking about being honest. Let's say you are sitting with somebody who's like some of the stuff that you just mentioned, which may be somewhat disgusting, but you're thinking, this person, I do like them, but, uh, you know, maybe they are just nervous. Do you say something? Like, You know, what the t- uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. I mean, if you do give the person another chance and you go out on another date, maybe you should say something in, you know, a, a, a positive way. I don't know. You've got to turn the negative into a positive somehow. You know, you're a great person, but, you know, I got to tell you, you don't need to chew the gum or, you know, pop a mint in your mouth instead of chewing gum. (laughs) You know, maybe people are chewing the gum because they want to have minty breath. I don't know, but guess what? Have a mint instead of the gum. You know, it sounds silly, but it's true. Yeah, and it's not silly. It's the real stuff. It's the stuff nobody wants to talk about, but you do talk about it. Yeah. So, well, this, you know, because this kind of is like, you know, why is your book different from all other books? Um, it is unique because you do cover all of this stuff, right? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to tell it like it is. Like you said, not many people want to talk about it. But we're single over the age of 40 for a reason. And we have to evaluate and reevaluate. And, you know, listen, love is universal. Everybody wants love. Everybody deserves love. But we have to look at the man in the mirror. What are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? And, uh, and, and just learn. Okay, so finally, I, should we, just using your description, you did learn and you did get married at age 40? 44. 44. So 44. what happened? I mean, was it, you know, you met the, I mean, 44 is, is um, premenopausal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that again. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we met through a mutual friend. I didn't even want to go out that evening. I forced myself. And I think that's another big one. How many times do we say, oh, you know, there's a party or someplace to go. Your friends ask you to go out and you're like, no, I'm just not into it. I'm tired. I'm this, I'm that. You got to get out there because if I stayed home that night, I wouldn't have met my husband. So I forced myself. We went out uh, with a group of people, the friend that was, you know, that introduced us. And uh, like I said, I, I didn't know if I was crazy about him. I, I was attracted to his look. But I, I just wasn't sure, and then he asked me out uh, through a text on the first date, and I said, ah, I just don't know. But again, I went out, and I have to tell you, we had the best night ever. We went out for sushi. We closed the restaurant. They had to kick us out practically, and just our values were the same. Uh, we're both family-oriented. Uh, we like to do the same things. You know, he, he was married before. He does have two kids, so I have two stepkids. That's not easy either. But, um, you that's know, your we, next we book. Have, yeah, that's my next book, stepmom. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're a great family. And, listen, nothing's easy in life. I mean, marriage is not easy either. But you just have to pick your battles. You have to learn to compromise. Communication is huge. 
And I think compromise is another biggie. People do not want to compromise. And when I say that, I don't mean compromise who you are. But, you know, you have to compromise in a relationship. It's give and take. We're not a culture that compromises. I mean, we don't even, we don't raise our kids that way. I think, you know, that all, that's a huge impact, I think, on, you know, people trying to stay together uh, when they're married. But, you know, one of the things you said you like to do the same things, and I just... I'd add to you, like to do the same things in the same way, because right. sometimes you might have the same values, but the way you approach them are different. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So that you don't get along necessarily. Um, you know, you may, you like to travel, you like education, you have big families, et cetera, but you don't approach it in the same way. And I think that we kind of sometimes leave that part of it out. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, <laughs> I always said I was going to marry an Italian man, liked red sauce. You know, growing up, we had sauce every every Sunday. And my husband's Irish-German, so uh, he doesn't like red sauce on everything. And we laugh about that. So, you know, sometimes you have this, this person in your mind that you're going to wind up with. And you wind up with somebody completely different. Yeah. And sometimes to people who are more too much like you, you compete for the same things. That's another issue, I think, when you think, True. oh, I want someone, yeah. And you have somebody who's a little bit different, um, you're not competing for the same for the same things, and you just offer different things to the relationship. So like, I guess what you're saying, there isn't particularly a formula, but there are ways in which to be aware, go about it. Um, and you, ha- you have a, an online website, right, dating. Uh, well, I write for Zeusk, uh, the date mix, so I do a column for them every other week, um, and also my website, toniadecosmo.com. I talk a lot about dating, uh, T-O-N-I-A-D-E-C-O-S-I-M-O.com. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, if I, like I said, if I could help one person, it's worth it. It's, uh, it's a crazy world out there. It's not easy finding the right person. But, uh, you know, just to give you a couple of statistics, if I can, uh, 58% of singles would rather remain single than marry somebody who isn't financially uh, stable. Um, you know, uh, online dating is a $3 billion business, and yet only 20% of single adults say that they're registered on online dating sites, which I found that to be amazing. Uh, also, 40% of babies born in America today are born to, uh, uh, you know, unmarried parents. So 40%, of, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot that's of true. Uh, single parents out there and, uh, you know, people that just are not married, raising children and they're not married. And why do you, we only have a couple minutes left. We, this is a whole other conversation, but why do you think that is? Well, I think fear of marriage uh, also, you know, I, I write about this in my book. I mean, there's women that want children and can't find the right person and are having children on their own. They're going to sperm bank. And I have a friend that has twins from, from doing that. She doesn't have a husband. And, you know, as you get older and you say, hey, I'm not meeting somebody, but I still want children. Yeah. So the options, uh, there are a lot of different options out there, which is interesting. It's been great. It's been fun, too, talking to you, single and, and not settling. I hate to say goodbye, but I want to make sure everybody <laughs> knows you can buy it at bookstores, Amazon, everywhere. Tonya DiCosimo, I mean, uh, you, you, um, 
you got a great personality, so I'm glad oh, you finally you. found somebody at 44. <laughs> thank you so much. It was such a pleasure great. speaking with you. Yeah, great talking to you. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.